That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, good friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, we're now into the third week of the war in Ukraine. Uh, the good news is that Putin's failed so far in his drive to take over Ukraine and topple its government. The bad news is that Putin's military are closing in on major cities and are also escalating their attacks on civilian targets, including schools, hospitals, apartment buildings, even maternity wards. So far, there is no end in sight, and nobody knows how long this war is going to drag on, nor how it will end. One good thing the war has accomplished, bringing the vast majority of Americans, Republicans, and Democrats together in support of the United States doing everything we can to help Ukraine against Vladimir Putin. Even a handful of former Trump administration officials have broken with Donald Trump on this issue, none of them more outspoken than today's guest, John Bolton, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under President George W. Bush and former national security advisor under Donald Trump. Ambassador Bolton, good to talk to you and thank you so much for joining us today on the Bill Press Pod. Well, glad to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to talk to you, of course, about the situation in Ukraine, Ambassador. But a lot of Americans are wondering, and i like to ask you first, why is it so important for the United States and our European allies to be uh, defending Ukraine, standing up for Ukraine? Well, I think it's uh, it's useful to start at the beginning, really, in 1945, when after two world wars, uh, the United States really uh, collectively decided that it was an American national security interest that uh, that Europe be peaceful and and stable. And uh, with the threat of the Cold War, we took a lot of actions to to try and help uh, do what we could to preserve peace and stability. NATO being the most important in Europe, but a variety of other things as well. Now, with the collapse of the the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, met many of the countries in Eastern and Central Europe that had been uh, under Soviet uh, uh, oppression during the Cold War came to NATO and said, look, we, we want to join. We want to be uh, Western in our values, and uh, we don't, we don't want to come under anybody's dominance in the future. And I think this is important to understand because NATO, we didn't expand NATO to get close to Russia. Uh, it's the countries of Eastern Europe that said, we want to be free countries. We want to make our own decisions. We want to, we want to have collective defense with like-minded people. That, that's what we did. Um, now, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union complicated this. And, and as it turns out, we ended up with a gray zone of countries between what I'll call NATO's eastern border and Russia's western border. And to take the three most at issue today, it's Belarus, Ukraine, and Moldova. 
uh, NATO never made a collective decision where to stop in effect. And I think that strategically was a mistake on our part uh, because any gray zone like that, any ambiguity is going to be an opportunity for a Soviet adventure, sorry, Freudian slip, Russian adventurism. <laughs> right. uh, and I think that's what we're seeing now. George, H, George W. Bush in April of 2008 proposed bringing Ukraine and Georgia, which is another part of the gray zone, into uh, line for very rapid NATO membership to help eliminate this ambiguity. The French and the Germans rejected that idea. Uh, and, and then through a lot of other history, including uh, a, an earlier Russian invasion in 2014, we are where we are now. A lot of people say, but, you know, Ukraine's not a NATO member. We, we, we should not in our interest. We don't we shouldn't care about it. Uh, you know, you, you may not be a NATO member, but the security of Ukraine directly affects the security of a lot of other NATO members in Eastern Europe. They, they know how important this is. I like to ask people, well, if Russia invaded Finland, would you say that's none of our mm -hmm. uh, business either? Uh, so it's not that we have any obligation by treaty to defend Ukraine. But when the security of Poland, of the Baltic republics, of others in Eastern Europe who are NATO members, uh, is adversely affected. And we can see that based on the attack yesterday on a Ukrainian facility 15 miles from the Polish border. Uh, the, a, a Russian victory in Ukraine is going to undermine peace and stability in Europe, and it's going to threaten our NATO allies. That, that's why it's of interest to the United States. Does it impact the security of the United States directly? Yeah. Yes, I think it does. Again, it comes back to the basic premise. Maybe we were wrong in 1945 that peace and security in Europe is not in America's national interest, but I don't think so. And, you know, this is a question, well, it's okay they can have Ukraine. Is it okay if they have Finland? Is it okay if they have Poland? This is the sort of thing that uh, uh, goes to the question why uh, really NATO should have made a more conscious decision. Are we prepared to press NATO membership right up to Russia's borders, or are we going to leave a gray zone mm -hmm. that can be open to exploitation? And for those who say you don't want to get too close to Russia, you know, that that's an argument that West Germany should not be in NATO, because after all, it abuts East Germany, where there are Russian troops. This this sort of uh, idea that if you happen to be close to Russia, you're, you fall into Russia's sphere of influence is an argument that proves too much. Does Canada, should, should we take over Canada because it's in our sphere of in influence? Uh, obviously not. I mean, this is a very, this whole idea that Ukraine isn't any of our business because it happens to have people who speak Russian in it and border with Russia. It's a very simplistic way of looking at, uh, at our national interest, I think. And as we speak, I believe this is day 19 of the war in Ukraine, uh, Putin's war uh, against Ukraine. How do you assess the situation so far? Are you surprised at the resistance of the Ukrainian people? Well, I, I am. I think there are two aspects. Number one, I think the Ukrainian resistance has been heroic. I mean, incredible bravery against uh, odds that look to be heavily stacked against them. Uh, and, and knowing because, because President Biden said unambiguously in early December that no U.S. troops would be involved in this, uh, they, they have stood for the independence of their country. And I don't want to take anything away from their, uh, their their bravery, but the second major aspect is this has been a catastrophe mm -hmm. for the Russian military and its reputation. I mean, I think their strategy was bad. They were after too many, 
targets with too few troops. They, they violated the maximum of concentration of forces. Uh, they, they've not employed their air force effectively. Their logistics have been uh, horrible, uh, running out of food and gasoline just a few miles from their own border or the border of Belarus when they came across. Apparently untrained troops, bad morale, bad leadership at the tactical level. Uh, and I think one, one consequence of this is that uh, uh, it drives Putin to continue the fighting because mm. leaving Ukraine aside, the, the hit to the credibility uh, and intimidating uh, uh, factor for the Soviet, for the Russian military has just taken a brutal hit here. Uh, and for, for Putin to stop before he can say, I have achieved victory, whatever, whatever victory is in his definition, uh, would be negotiating from a position of real weakness. So ironically and tragically, the failure of the Russian military uh, in, the, in the first three weeks uh, could well prolong the conflict so that Putin and, and his entire security structure are not totally humiliated. You touched on something that a lot of people are asking, and I'd love your take on what does Putin want? I mean, does he want all of Ukraine? Does he want uh, a land bridge through eastern Ukraine to Crimea? Uh, any idea? What do you think his well, ultimate goal is? Yeah, no, there, look, there are a lot of theories, and I don't, I don't think we yet know the answer to it. Uh, I think his attack on Kiev can only be explained by a desire to overthrow the Zelensky government and, and put in some kind of puppet government. I, I don't understand why you want to have tanks in battles in urban streets. I don't understand the logic of that. I don't, I don't get what he thought uh, that they were trying to accomplish. Uh, my view has been wrongly or correctly. I might as well say it again because I've been saying it for months. I think what he really wants is to take over the, uh, the predominantly culturally Russian areas of the country, the eastern and southern parts, which are predominantly Russian speaking, predominantly Eastern Orthodox, as opposed to the Ukrainian speaking and, uh, and Catholic uh, uh, Western mm -hmm. parts of the country. Now, there's no bright line that divides these two. It's the countries like a case of measles when you look at language and, and, uh, and religious affiliation. But I think in particular, uh, Putin wants the North Shore of the Black Sea totally under Russian control. He wants the port of Odessa, uh, and he wants to link up with the Transnistria Republic in Moldova, which runs up the eastern bank of the Nestor River, where there are still Russian troops to this day. Uh, and I think uh, when I say the eastern part of Ukraine, it's a pretty big chunk. It's much beyond the two so-called autonomous uh, uh, republics that are there now. But if he were to have that, I think he would be prepared to declare victory. Now, I don't, I don't see Zelensky agreeing to that unless he suffers uh, uh, much more of a military setback than they have so far. So notwithstanding the, uh, the, the peace negotiations, which are in their fourth day today, I don't, I don't anticipate uh, those coming to any conclusion soon because I don't think either side at this moment sees it in their interest to do that. So you don't think today a diplomatic solution is possible or likely? Uh, I don't see it without more fighting. I mean, it's, a, it's an unpleasant reality, but some conflicts uh, only end when one side wins whatever it thinks its objective is. And I think that's where we are for quite some time, possibly weeks, maybe months. I hope that's not true. 
Uh, and look, if the Russians suddenly found a bright general with a little daring and a little competence, uh, may maybe this would end earlier, but the, none of them seem to be stepping up. And those who come to the front, which by the way, in in uh, when a one or two star general does that, that's a mark of bravery, if not desperation, where several of them have been killed. Uh, the Russians don't seem to be poised for any breakthroughs. Uh, again, our guest today on the Bill Press Pod is Ambassador John Bolton, former uh, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and former National Security Advisor under President Trump, uh, Ambassador to the United Nations under President George W. Bush. So, Mr. Ambassador, are we are we doing enough, uh, in your judgment, uh, the United States and our European allies to assist Ukraine? Uh, and if not, what else should we be doing? No, no, I don't think we're doing enough. I think the basic problem, and, and this is, uh, it's history now for the Ukraine war, but it's critical, I think, for uh, for U.S. policy uh, later, especially in Asia, uh, dealing with, uh, with China. The basic failure, and it's a failure we now experience every day, is we failed to deter this invasion to begin with. It's certainly the case that we've imposed, and we and the Europeans and others have imposed uh, significant sanctions, but but let's let's be clear. We we can't say we're we're happy about this situation. We we can't say well it's it's true the war started our deterrence failed, but boy we're really whacking the Russians with sanctions and we're okay with that. We're not okay with that. What we wanted to do was stop the war and we failed and we failed for a couple of reasons that are significant for Ukraine, but as I say significant elsewhere. Number one, our credibility was not good. Uh, uh, we did next to nothing in 2008 when Putin invaded Georgia and split off, coincidentally, two uh, parts of the country as autonomous republics. We did next to nothing in 2014 when Putin invaded Ukraine for the first time and annexed Crimea and set up these two autonomous little statelets in the eastern part of the country. And third, I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan, not just its... Uh, uh, its implementation, but the withdrawal itself was a, a strategic mistake that I think convinced uh, Putin that we were in a period of withdrawal. The U.S. was in a period of withdrawal, and that uh, he could uh, uh, he he could accomplish his objectives in Ukraine at very little cost. Now that also assumed, I think, incorrectly that he could do it quickly, which he obviously hasn't done. Right. But number that, two, can, can I just jump in there just for a second? Do you think in between some of those events, do you believe that the infamous telephone call with President Trump and President Zelensky, where he said, well, we have some aid coming your way, but only if you agree to do this investigation of then candidate Joe Biden, did that send any kind of signal to Putin? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it had a very detrimental effect on one of Ukraine's highest priorities, which is establish a good uh, bilateral relationship and a good relationship between the two presidents. And uh, uh, from from that moment, from the summer of 2019 forward, when, when uh, Zelensky came in as a new president, all the way through the 2020 election, Ukraine was the subject of debate in American politics uh, and and had no chance whatever to establish a normal bilateral relationship that could could have built confidence in Ukraine uh, and and shown to the Russians that our uh, relations were growing closer and that uh, we very much had Ukraine's security in mind. Uh, and I don't think uh, in the year since Biden was inaugurated, unfortunately, a lot changed other than that, uh, that you didn't have the erratic uh, 
nature of the Trump presidency threatening NATO and uh, uh, and and generally disturbing things. But to but to but to make up for that disturbance in the force took time and distraction, and I think uh, was one of the reasons Putin didn't think that that we were ready. But the the second, not beyond credibility, I just don't think the package of sanctions that we threatened Russia with and all the rhetoric about alliance uh, unity was sufficient either. I mean, we don't have alliance unity. We, for example, now belatedly have sanctioned Russia's oil and gas sector. Absolutely the right thing to do. We should have done it earlier. Germany is not, and most other European countries are not. Even though we have frozen many Russian foreign bank deposits, new euro and dollar payments are being made to Russia as we speak for the continuing delivery of oil and gas through the European system. And I think this is the the kind of loophole in the sanction that uh, that gives Putin confidence that uh, that he can continue. Uh, you know, I've, I've been a strong proponent of sanctions in a lot of different situations in Iran, North Korea, the Maduro regime in Venezuela. We, we've imposed sanctions of equal or comparable magnitude, and those regimes are still rocking along. So, you know, it's uh, the, the best day for most sanctions is the day they're announced, and then you have to enforce them. And the target of the sanctions doesn't just sit there and, uh, uh, and and take it. They find ways to avoid the sanctions, to mitigate the effect. And that's what's going on now. And it has not been enough to hit Russia uh, really where it lives. And, and I think this is, uh, it will cause pain to Russia, but it's not going to stop the war. And long term, uh, I fear that memories in Europe and for some in the United States will be short enough. They'll say, okay, well, the war's over. Come on, we got to get back to normal and uh, and the sanctions will disappear. Are there other actions, actions we could take? What about the debated in Congress right now, the no-fly zone? Even some Democrats are saying Biden should do it. Well, you know, uh, again, if you go back to what Biden said in in December of uh, last year, he just took American forces off the table. And unless he reverses himself on that, which is possible, uh, you can't do many of the things that that we should have been doing. I I think just leaving the ambiguity, uh, saying like uh, in in the famous uh, uh, phrase, all options are on the table, leaving that ambiguity in Putin's mind would have gone a long way. Uh, I think uh, there's a, a fallback from a full countrywide no-fly zone, a kind of humanitarian no-fly zone in the western part of the country. I mean, as we speak, the latest UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates is 2.8 million refugees, meaning Ukrainians who have crossed an, an international boundary into Poland or another country. Uh, and that doesn't begin to count the number of Ukrainians who are on the move now away from their homes, they're called internally displaced persons. Uh, a week or so ago, I heard an estimate there of a million. I bet it's higher than that now. There have been projections of 5 million Ukrainians becoming refugees. That's more than 10% of the population. So a humanitarian no-fly zone in the western part of the country to stabilize that flow, to, to minimize the burden on the Ukrainians who have left their homes, to, to minimize the burden on the neighboring countries, makes some sense, but it requires putting planes with weapons in the air. And if Biden's serious, uh, I, I don't think he's going to do it. I, I think we've made other mistakes. I think this decision not to provide the Polish MiGs uh, is inexplicable. Uh, there's no military, uh, moral, or legal distinction between supplying javelins and stingers and, and many other things we're doing 
intelligence for uh, Ukrainian military uh, planners, uh, cyber warfare assistance uh, to their counterparts in Ukraine. There's there's no distinction that that would rule out those uh, MIGs, and and you know maybe they're not the best planes in the world, but Ukrainian pilots know how to fly them, and and there's a matter of attrition in the air going on. Uh, we can have great Ukrainian successes, but they've only got a, a certain number of planes, and it's a lot less than the Russians can bring to bear. I hear you on a uh, humanitarian no-fly zone. Um, I want to be clear, U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine, you would support well, I would or have not done support? That, I, I would have done that back going back to December, not necessarily to fight, but to train and be with the Ukrainian military. And figuratively, so those Russian generals looking across the border through their field glasses would have seen a lot of American flags and said, I wonder what that means. You know, there's a there's an argument here. The president himself has made it that if there's any kind of contact between NATO and Russian forces, we're at all out war in Europe. Right. That's simply not true. Uh, it's risky. It's dangerous. It's risky to supply stingers and javelins. You know, they kill Russians just like those MIGs would. Uh, so if Putin wants a pretext to escalate, he's already got it. I'm not suggesting that actual hostilities here are in anybody's interest. Uh, but, you know, if Putin can deter us in a way, we fail to deter him and now he's deterring us. Uh, it is not the case that if one American looks cross-eyed at one Russian, we're at World War III. That's a classic non sequitur. Uh, there are lots of levels in this escalatory ladder. Uh, we need to think this through carefully. I'm certainly not at this moment advocating precipitous action. But the fact is, uh, you know, Putin says, I'm going to put my nuclear forces on heightened alert and, and people in the West start swooning. Now, we just had testimony from the heads of the intelligence agencies last week uh, that they've seen nothing that indicates any change in the status of Russia's nuclear forces. It was a bluff by Putin. It was a threat that we succumb to. And the more threats that we succumb to, the more Putin deters us the more likely it is he will achieve his objectives in Ukraine. And I fear he's going to achieve them by grinding the country into the ground. Do you believe from what you've seen so far that particularly with the targeting of civilians that uh, Putin and his generals are guilty of war crimes? Well, certainly any, any attack on civilians uh, who are not themselves participating in, in combat uh, violates all, all of our Western norms of war. But I think it is a mistake. I've, I've written about this for over 20 years to think that uh, the answer to this is prosecution in something like the International Criminal Court. Uh, the, these are people who should be held accountable ultimately by a new government in Russia. They are committing crimes in the name of the country of Russia, and fundamentally, it's the Russians who need, need to deal with it. Uh, and in the meantime, it's not going to stop a single atrocity on the battlefield, not one. Our guest again, Ambassador John Bolton, former National Security Advisor under President Trump, former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. under President George W. Bush, author of the best-selling book, The Room, with a very Hamiltonian title, The Room Where It Happened. Um, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue our discussion about the situation in Ukraine with Ambassador John Bolton. 
Hey, friends, I know that uh, all of you have been like Carol and I have as we watched the just heartbreaking video of these families crossing the borders to flee and get out of Ukraine. What can we do to help them? Well, here's what we came up with, and I want to share with you Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen. I mean, he is everywhere. There's a catastrophe uh, or a crisis on this planet. And you bet that Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen are there today. So far, they've served over a million meals, free meals to families in the Ukraine, in Poland, in Romania, in Moldova, and in Hungary. They really need our help, and their help has gone directly to the people and the refugees from Ukraine. So uh, I encourage you to do what we did. Go to their website, wck.org, World Central Kitchen, wck.org, and just send them whatever help you can to help the people of Ukraine. It's the least we can do. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, 
what makes a life a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And we're back here on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you again for joining us today, Ambassador John Bolton, our guest. So, uh, Ambassador, a man you worked for for a little over a year, I think, um, Former President Donald Trump says, oh, man, none of this mess in Ukraine would ever have happened if I had still been in the White House. Should we believe that? Uh, certainly not. And by the way, it was 17 months, not that anybody oh, was counting. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, look, this is this is Trump. Uh, obviously, he, he had a perfect administration. Uh, he would have gotten everything right. Uh, as I've said, he barely knew where Ukraine was. Uh, he saw everything through the prism of where Hillary Clinton's server was being hidden and what Hunter Biden was doing to earn an income. Uh, he didn't understand what the strategic uh, significance of this was. And, and, and to show how easily his opinions change at, at a, at a uh, fundraising event uh, a few days ago in New Orleans, he came up with the suggestion that maybe uh, we should uh, paint some American uh, fighters uh, with Chinese colors and send them in to attack the Russians. Uh, and then, of course, the Russians, uh, being fools, would retaliate against China. So th this is this is the level of thinking of, of the former president. And it's as graphic uh, a, uh, an example as I can think of, of, of why I concluded uh, after uh, close observation that he wasn't fit to be president. Well, and I wondered uh, on a personal level why you put up with it as long as you did um, with all of your experience in foreign policy, dealing with someone who, let's let's just say, did not have a lot of ex foreign policy experience expertise. Yeah. Well, look, I, I uh, nobody has, uh, well, few, very few people anyway have called me naive. So I, I, I don't, uh, I don't plead that uh, as an mm -hmm. excuse. I, I'd heard everything uh, everybody else had about Trump before I started working there in, in April of 2018. But I believed going in, notwithstanding all of that, and I had met him before I talked to him, uh, notwithstanding all of that, that that the, the weight of the presidency would have the same effect on Trump as it had on every other American president. The gravity of the responsibilities would be a discipline that would, that would shape his thinking. Um, and uh, it turned out that I was wrong. And uh, so I lasted 17 months. Uh, some of my friends, and I've lost friends over this, some of my friends uh, criticized me for not leaving earlier. Uh, other friends have criticizing me for not staying to the end, saying you had a duty to do the best you could, given who was in the Oval Office. Uh, you know, I, I stayed as long as I thought I had any measure of effectiveness, as long as I could still get up in the morning and do the job. Uh, and uh, I'm sure I made uh, probably more than my share of mistakes during my time there. But I thought I did it uh, for as, as long as I could, I hope, uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for the country. Uh, and from the beginning, uh, President Trump was very negative about NATO, the role of NATO, questioning whether we should even remain in NATO. Uh, it took him a long time to say we would respect Article 5 and follow it. Uh, do you believe that had he been reelected, he would have pulled out of NATO? Uh, I do believe there's a very substantial chance of that. Uh, I recounted in the book, uh, the NATO summit in the spring of 2018. And I'll tell you, and I think uh, Jim Mattis and Mike Pompeo, who were there with me, 
speaking candidly, would say they were just as worried as I was. John Kelly, who was chief of staff, was there. We, we would all say he was right on the verge of doing it. Uh, and I think uh, in a second term, uh, there would have been many things that happened in the Trump presidency, ma- many of which would disappoint even some people today who remain his followers because he would have been completely freed uh, of any uh, electoral constraint at that point. A- and because I think the, f- the failure of the first impeachment uh, to convicting, which was entirely predictable, uh, it not only didn't constrain him, it emboldened him. It would have emboldened him in a, in, in a second term. So I think that's one reason people ask, well, why did Putin wait? I think he uh, may have believed, most people did before COVID anyway, that Trump would win a second term and and that in the second term, Trump might well go after NATO. And so Putin would have gotten what he wanted in Ukraine for a lot lower price than he's paying now. Uh, so Trump was doing his work for him, basically. In effect, that's right. Yeah. And I think I think this is the you know, the uh, Leninist phrase is useful idiot, and they haven't forgotten that in Moscow. Do you, do you ever uh, have any, or do you have any insights, I guess, in what was the relationship between Trump and Putin? I guess a, a lot of people are trying to figure this out. I mean, some people ask, what does Putin have on Trump? Uh, it's not that, but Trump certainly did and does admire Vladimir Putin. Why? You know, I'm not a shrink, and I I, I don't uh, I don't sort of indulge in that. I guess it, it's a lot of fun for people, even including mm-hmm. those who are not shrinks. I, I don't think it tells you anything about what what he's going to do tomorrow or the next day. I would say this: I think Trump uh, admired figures like Putin, like Xi Jinping, like Kim Jong Un, like Recep Erdogan of Turkey, Maduro, and others uh, who were authoritarian figures not because of their authoritarian nature so much as that, you know, they were big guys and they did big guy things. And, and he was a big guy and he'd like to do big guy things too. And, and that's, 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 the, that's the attraction. The one thing I will say, people often wonder, well, what did he commit to Putin in private or what did he commit to others in private? Uh, I think if he really had done anything uh, of that nature, we'd know about it because Trump alone could not have implemented uh, anything that he committed to. Uh, somebody else would have had to do it for him. And there, there isn't any evidence that I'm aware of that anything like that happened. Right. So, of course, we haven't seen uh, politically the end of Donald Trump. He's uh, actively talking about, we don't know whether he's going to do it or not for sure, of running, he's talking about uh, running again in 2024. Um, if he did, if, if he were the Republican nominee, would you support him? Uh, I would not. I, I didn't support him or Biden in 2020. I wrote in the name of a conservative Republican who remains anonymous to this day. But <laughs> you got your because, vote, right? <laughs> because there was no conservative Republican running in 2020. And uh, I don't think Trump uh, will run in 2024. I think he knows he lost in 2020. He's never going to say it. He fears he would lose in 2024. He doesn't want to go down in history as a loser. Uh, so he'll talk about it uh, incessantly until the last possible moment. Then he'll try and be the kingmaker for the Republican nomination, in, in which he may succeed. But I don't think Trump is going to run. Uh, after he published his book, were you surprised to hear former Attorney General Bill Barr say that he would vote for Trump in 2024? Well, all I can say is I understand the the instinct, which is the other people are so bad that uh, that whatever you think of Trump, you've got you've got to vote for him. And uh, look, in 2016, uh, I, I did vote for 
uh, for Trump uh, because I thought that that uh, that he was preferable to uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, who was a year ahead of me in law school, as was her husband. So I, I thought I knew the Clintons pretty well. Uh, but I didn't vote for Trump again in 2020 because I had seen him and there wasn't any argument. For me, this wasn't speculation. I didn't think he was fit to be president, and I'm not going to vote for somebody uh, who meets that description, no matter who his opponent is. Uh, you've been very generous with your time, Ambassador. Just a couple of quick questions here at the end. One, I have to ask on a personal level, there are reports uh, that the Iranian government has actually agents out uh, with the purpose of, um, well, I don't know the words for it, I guess, assassinating you, uh, are you aware of this threat? Is it real? And are you, um, have you been provided extra security to deal with it? Well, I really, I can't speak to it for, for a lot of reasons. I'm sure you can understand. I do. Yeah. But, but I want to say this, uh, the, the Iranian government can't be trusted. And I think it would be a huge mistake for the United States to reenter the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. I fear the administration is bending heaven and earth to do it. Uh, I opposed it in 2014-2015. I was I considered getting the Trump administration to withdraw from it, one of the most important things I accomplished. Uh, and I strongly oppose going back into it. They, they, This is an agreement tailored for them to get the nuclear weapons. It's a big mistake for the United States to consider it uh, as inhibiting them uh, in their nuclear desires in any material way. And do you think that's what this is all about? The administration's effort to get back in the deal, you mean, or or, or the what, threat, what you asked about before? The threat to you. Look, uh, again, I, I really can't speak to it, but, you know, I've been sanctioned by the Russians. I've been sanctioned by the Chinese. I've been sanctioned by the Iranians. What's wrong with North Korea? <laughs> uh, not yet, is, I guess, is, is all you could say. Uh, and finally, I, finally, I want to circle back to Ukraine to this extent that there are reports again that Russia has now asked China to help them with the delivery of some, particularly some military assistance. We don't know if that's true, but if it is true and if China does comply, does that raise this war to Ukraine to a whole new, uh, very, very dangerous level? Are you concerned about that? Yeah, uh, both Russia and China have denied those reports. I don't believe their denials. Uh, I, I've written and I believe that Russia and China have uh, to use a French diplomatic term, have an entente going on here, uh, a series of mutual understandings uh, that are obviously not public. Uh, I think uh, China has Russia's back in the case of Ukraine. I think Russia will have China's back if it decides to go after Taiwan or some other uh, target in the Indo-Pacific. It's not a full-up alliance yet. It's moving in that direction. It may, may become a real axis at some point, which would obviously not be in our interest. And I think one of the, the, the broader global strategic regions why this uh, conflict in Ukraine is so important is that uh, we and our friends in Europe and our friends in the Indo-Pacific have got to think uh, in broader strategic terms than, than just regional terms. This, this is a conflict that, uh, that will define the rest of this century. And if uh, Putin accidentally or deliberately were to strike Poland, missiles landing in Poland, uh, we're looking at U.S. involvement, European involvement, World War III. You, you know, th this is uh, th this will will be the test of 
the Article 5 commitment that an attack on one shall be deemed an attack on all. And it's one reason why I don't think Putin will do it at this stage with his military in disarray in Ukraine. Uh, he, he would be inviting uh, regime change in Moscow. And that's that's something we can wish for. I don't think it will happen until after the Ukraine conflict is uh, uh, is uh, is finished. But in the short term, I think it has given military personnel in NATO a little breathing room that they can see this is the Russian army that we have feared so long. This is this is what they send out first into Ukraine. What are the, what are they holding in reserve, for goodness sakes? Right. Ambassador John Bolton, you're good, very good with your time today. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Maybe have a chance to talk again. Well, thanks again for having me. I look forward to that. Thanks, Ambassador. And that's it for today's podcast with Ambassador John Bolton. By the way, a link to buy his book, uh, The Room Where It Happened, uh, you'll find on the uh, notes to this edition of the uh, Bill Press Pod. We thank uh, Ambassador Bolton for his time. We thank all of you for listening and remind you that we'll be back on Friday. Uh, It's going to be another busy week here in Washington. We'll be back on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable to take a look at uh, the latest on Ukraine, the latest on COVID relief and this uh, possible scary B2 variant that we're hearing about. What's going on with the uh, uh, hearings, not hearings yet, but the interviews on the new Supreme Court nomination. And we'll watch as President Biden signs that $1.5 trillion omnibus funding bill and talk about it all with our Reporters Roundtable on Friday. So take care of yourself. Be good. Be strong. Come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.